uh, let me get started and see if we can get through this so we can get to Glenn. <coughs> so I wanted to cover uh, some pretty familiar topics with debt demographics and uh, and deficits. So let's jump right into it. Um, the world population is projected to grow to between 9.4 billion and 12.7 billion people by 2021. Um, but as you can see from the chart, the growth rate starts to flatten out after 2050 and is uh, really, you can see on the bottom, the annual rate of change and is a steady decline. And as a stock, this is one you'd be thinking twice about. But, you know, there's positives and negatives to this is the planet's burning up, as Mark had mentioned. And um, a lot of the climate uh, people think that slowing fertility rates is a positive it's tougher on GDP, but it does have big implications for policy. I just want to go through some of the numbers quickly because it's pretty fascinating. And after I sent this over, Mark, Ed Yordeni came out with a piece on demographics, which I wish I had before I did the slide deck because it was much better. But he covered three areas, and I want to touch on them because I think they are all related to what I wanted to touch on. Uh, but as you can see, we're in a period where uh, – Births per thousand people has been in a steady decline since 1950. You had that build up after World War II, and then you started to see a pretty steady decline in the uh, births per uh, thousand. And, and I think there's three forces that are going to really drive this going out for the next uh, bit of time. <clears throat> One is the pandemic. And as I mentioned on last week's call, you're starting to see birth rates year over year for December down quite a bit in uh, Japan, Korea, Europe. Um, there's a slowdown. We think the pandemic has actually had a pretty significant effect on that. For younger people, climate has actually had an effect on birth rates as they're concerned about bringing people into the world. And, you know, a lot of the climate activists think, uh, you know, we've had too big a uh, growth of population for the planet. And uh, that's where part of the problems are coming. So you have a mindset of the younger people that is, uh, in a sense, fewer births or saving the world rather than hurting it. Um, and, you know, with the pandemic on top of that. And also, if you think about young people, their life experience from when they were born, you know, in the late 90s to uh, early 2000s and what they've experienced is, you know, we've been almost a constant war in the U.S. since that time. We've had the financial crisis. We've had the uh, tech bubble. You know, we've had now the pandemic. Uh, they've had a lot thrown at them, and they're not as, you know, excited about the world prospects as other people are. So I think there's a number of factors, climate being one of them, uh, the pandemic being another. But Ed points out a third, which is really interesting, and it's uh, urbanization. And his points on urbanization, um, which is not an area that people would think is a contributor to, uh, slowing uh, fertility rates is uh, he focuses on a couple different areas and it's really the difference in cost of uh, housing, feeding and uh, and education in rural areas versus the city and the impact that that's had as we've gone through this um, shift from rural population into the city uh, in many areas that's had a pretty big impact when you think about the cost of living in cities versus on the on the in the rural areas, you think about a kid in the city is more of an expense as an economic value than an economic value. We're on a farm. Young people, as soon as they're able to work, can be economic contributors into the farm. So, a lot of these shifts are more subtle and have happened over time. 
this urbanization one is is one that's playing out. You're seeing that really play out in places like China, where they're really focused on housing costs, education costs, and the like, and what and food costs, and what that means, because they've had one of the biggest shifts of population from the uh, rural to the urban areas. So a really interesting kind of different point of view. This is another chart from uh, The Lancet where they're showing the uh, year net replacement, uh, net reproduction falls below replacement rate. And this is not a problem that's a new problem. It started in a lot of areas earlier on. We'll put a bigger emphasis on what we're doing about uh, about immigration policies for a lot of countries because where you can see the where the population growth is versus where the population declines are, are emerging economies seeing the growth, developed economies seeing a slowdown, and what does that mean and how does that play out? Immigration policies, I think, are going to be a big uh, impact. The other thing I think it's going to have an impact for policymakers is, as you can see, the age of um, the working age population is declining all over the world. And look at the rates of decline, except for really Nigeria, which is the yellow uh, bar that's going up here. Um, pretty much everywhere else, the U.S., India, China, as you move out uh, towards 2100, you're seeing these big drop-offs. And that is going to create problems for employers as we're trying to figure out in governments, as you're trying to figure out how do you support an aging population with a smaller group of people working in with people living longer and how does that play out? So I want to shift to the debt side for a minute. We touched on this a little bit last week. This is household debt to GDP for a number of countries. And what I would point out here is only two of these um, uh, six listed here are actually from the pandemic forward, seeing a drop in household debt to GDP. And I think that's going to be important. And you're seeing that in the U.S. and you're also seeing that for, um, uh, I'm sorry, for Germany where household debt is declining. I want to look at it a little bit differently from the U.S. And I mentioned last week household net worth is on the rise. It's now projected to be targeting in Q3 $145 trillion, significant move up of almost uh, you know $30 uh, trillion in the last 12 months since the, since the lows. Um, but when you look at, I'm sorry, when you look at household debt, um, as a percentage of GDP, a big drop since the lows in the pandemic or the highs in the pandemic is a ratio. And when you look at it in different cuts for the U.S., and these are four, first is household financial obligations as a percent of GDP. The message for all four of these is the same, but household financial obligations includes rent and other payments that aren't captured in household debt service payments, which is the red line. And then when you look below the two are mortgage debt services, the green, and you're seeing that come down from its pandemic highs or actually from its financial crisis highs. But look at it, it's at a, at a pretty historic low um, as a sign of a healthier consumer. And when you look at consumer debt service payments, that's also kind of flattening and coming down, but uh, continuing a trend from uh, 2000 forward. So you're seeing a, a much improved picture for a lot of the population, certainly not all. And we know it, inequality is a big issue, but this actually is a very sign of, is a sign of a, you know, improving health for a lot of households uh, coming out of what's been a really difficult 14 year period. The other thing that's happening, and I want to just touch on deficits because the CPO came out with new projections uh, based on what they view as some of the proposals coming through in the uh, uh, latest 
stimulus efforts, but not the three and a half trillion dollars that's being proposed now. But what you can see is we're, we've hit a low as the CBO is projecting. That's a contractual budget office. Interest costs are going to be a bigger part of that over the long term out to 2031. But what we, what has been a surprise is the deficit was lower than they projected a year ago because the economy did so well during the financial crisis that the strains are a lot lower. And I think it's improved by about $200 billion in terms of the deficit in a short period, which doesn't say we don't have a big problem. We do, but it says it's starting to uh, see some surprises. And the surprising strength was um, the tax receipts that were collected, <clears throat> which speaks to the fact that some of the policies put in place to navigate out of the crisis are actually did work and are helpful. The question is, what does it mean longer term? And when you put all this together, I think Jack's assessment is um, the outlook is pretty strong and we're positive on it in the near term, but the underlying problems are going to have significant impacts, whether it's the demographic shifts. We think that's going to have a big impact on policy. I'll touch on that in one sec. The debt picture is mixed, but it is overall globally, but it is improving, and those improvements will play through in in how their uh, spending patterns are going, And but also they're being more thoughtful about uh, debt and uh, and that is leads to, a, I think, an overall healthier economy. Government finances are going to be challenged by what's going on. And I think the population and the demographic issues are going to uh, force governments to keep central bank rates low. I think we can look at Japan as a, as a lesson for uh, how low rates can stay for an extended period, but also what it means for the government finances. They're up to, I think, over 230% uh, of GDP on a debt-to-GDP basis. Um, but their economy is doing okay. Um, they have other real issues that they have to face. And immigration policies, I think, are going to be a key element for policymakers to get right um, as birth rates are just not self-sustaining. And that actually has some big implications for flow of capital and flow of human talent, I think, out of um uh, African nations and other nations that are uh, seeing high population growth uh, as people continue to try and find a better life. I think the substitution of technology for labor will continue to rise, which means you're going to see more robotics play at play in uh, companies and more uh, uh, work to find ways to do more with uh, fewer people, um, which I think is going to lead to the combination of debt, uh, demographics, creative destruction, towards existing jobs is going to force governments to more aggressively and permanently shift to guaranteed investment uh, income programs, which is not a popular topic, but it's actually, uh, as I think Bill mentioned last week, is something I think is subtly going on around the world and is being tested in a lot of places. And I just think the math of the global economy is going to be such that uh, will push us more in that direction, which has pretty significant implications for uh, governments and for businesses as they move forward. So, Mark, uh, a lot of different topics, a lot of ground covered, but there's so much going on in the world today. Uh, I didn't want to touch on the way the world's burning up as much or the new uh, report from on climate that came out, which we could spend hours on, but a lot to cover. And uh, I think what Glenn's going to cover next is going to be really critical for how we move forward as a global economy. I think you're on mute. I'm on mute. I owe everybody a beer. I owe everybody a beer. I owe everybody a beer. I owe everybody a beer.
so uh yeah, Glenn, don't ruin it for us. Everything's looks so bullish. Um we'll hold your thunder until then. Comments, questions. Adam, you got a question. Adam. Um, yeah, there yeah, you there go. You go. Her, her. Sorry, sorry. Stephen, Stephen. Uh, the um the net worth of of households we talked about this last week that the increase of net worth how how is that distributed particularly in the in the middle class lower and lower economic class well it's interesting for a lot of those households uh their money is tied up in their homes so with housing prices rising and their debts coming down their financial picture is improved and that's why that um uh mortgage debt uh declining and even consumer debt declining is so important because those households the discretionary income that they have so much of it's so scarce that when you have these low rates everyone thinks it's just pushing up the high end which it absolutely does because they own the most assets but if you're getting the benefits of the lower rates on your uh on your loans and and their consumer debt and your mortgage debt it actually improves their standing considerably. So it's maybe more meaningful for them, but less mathematically important for the overall numbers. But I think for those households, it's certainly a, a boon. And when you think about mortgage rates being at, you know, 60 year lows, um, that allows them to, um, deal with, uh, their, their cash flows better. So I think you have to look at it in the aggregate, but you also have to say, what's the impact on those as it affects their cash flows, and we're seeing the low rates are working for them. It is creating this distribution that is completely uneven because obviously, you know, the Bezos of the world are seeing their math go up in ways that are unfathomable, right? But for the average household, they're in a much better spot, and I think that's what you're seeing, but there are big divergences still, you know, and if you came in with too much debt and your income was impacted, you're not getting out of this easily. So I think we're going to see as things evolve, that's going to be an impact. I also think coming out of this, Adam, an important element is going to be the different approaches that countries took, where in Europe, it was more about maintaining the income and keeping people in jobs, yeah. where we were actually supplementing uh, the income separately and giving businesses some forgiveness and grants. I think it's going to be interesting to see down the road how that plays out. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, you're welcome. I see Luke with a hand up. Bill, did you want to say something first? I didn't know between the two of you. Uh, I, I was, Steve, I was just going to ask you if you can kind of walk us through this, the CBO chart a little bit yeah. and uh, decode the, the colors because that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. So the CBO, uh, let me get to that one for you here. So this chart's updated pretty regularly. Oh, I missed it. So it looks at uh, deficit or surplus, which, as you can see, back to 71, very uh, few times in the surplus. And a lot of that was uh, Washington wizardry with uh, uh, this uh, Social Security fund and all that. But really what you're looking at is uh, in these colors are three big elements of it, which is um, uh, the interest cost is really the big element of it and the other is just our regular outflows out outlays and uh and receipts and 
What has been helpful coming out of this bill is that the receipts were surprised on the upside. Um, we know what the outflows were going to be because outlays were going to be because that was pretty well targeted. Um, but what, what is interesting is, uh, you know, you, as you can see in the 2020 and 2021, the, the dark purple is really just our outlays. Um, uh, but what you're seeing is the, in the light, uh, purple and mauve, I guess is, uh, is more of the interest cost. And that's going to continue to rise as we go out and, you know, I think that's going to force our government as it forced the government of Japan and it's going to force European Central Bank to keep rates as low as they can for an extended period to kind of deal with some of the debt problems that are going to exist out there. So this could grow if rates go up and that uh, particularly from 31 forward, if we have a big increase in rates and don't get our finances under control, then uh, that uh, light purple area is going to grow at a pretty significant rate. Uh, particularly when you're looking at, you know, 30 trillion of debt in 2030. Right. Now that's that's really helpful because it it seems as though right now kind of net interest is around like 1.5, 1.6 percent of GDP, and deciphering the tea leaves it seems as though the Fed was targeting like no more than two percent. And so you know, based on this, you know, you can see that as you point out that like you know, magenta bar, you know, gets bigger to the point 31. I'm just eyeballing. It. It's almost as large as outlays. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. And, and that actually is, that's a problem that, um, you know, they're not really focusing on and trying to solve the human capital issues in DC right now. And the other issues that we're facing, there is a bill that comes due. Um, I think one of the really smart Canadian, uh, Gold investors had a line years ago that debt's the current consumption of future earnings. And if you're a country, you're taking your future earnings to pay off your old expenses. And uh, if it's not productively spent, you're going to have a worsening problem in the out years. So your assessment bill is dead on. Thanks. And then I saw Jerry asked uh, Mark about uh, how will university guaranteed in programs income programs work and uh it's unclear because there's a lot of them but basically what it is jerry is that the government says that uh um if you look out at seniors and this is one way to look at it um seniors to if you're in long-term care situation you you actually have to spend your net worth i think down to like two thousand dollars to get medicaid to cover your uh long-term care uh needs or your final needs for care and which means that you're going to be earning uh basically your social security for a lot of those people would be about eighteen thousand dollars your end of care costs are probably going to be ninety three thousand a year to be in a nursing home so that gap is what the governments are going to have to try and figure out how they deal with so that's one element of it so they're not going to put out eighty thousand dollars for everyone but they are going to try and help people get above the poverty level um, which means they're probably going to be looking at, you know, $1,000 or $2,000 a month payments to people. And if they do it right, it would be needs-based and, and all that. But the way it's being done right now in other places is everyone gets the same thing regardless of, of need. Um, so it's going to be something that's interesting to see, but it is basically a guaranteed monthly payment from the government 
similar to what we had for the last year for a lot of those people who are on, uh, on unemployment uh, getting the enhanced benefits. It's more of that on a glorified basis, so if that helps. It's being tested in a lot of different places right now with mixed results, and uh, I don't know that anyone's found the right answer to that, whether it works or doesn't work particularly well, but it's something that's going to, I think, gather a lot of steam. Thanks, Peter. You're welcome. I think Luke had a question. Um, I think he actually touched on a little bit, but um, I heard somewhere where China's supporting half of their population in payments um, because of their aging population. And if the pandemic has uh, caused any amount of disruption to the Social Security and um, making it much more straining on the government system here in the U.S. as well, um, you know that that's a uh, coming uh, battle in D.C. to how to cover that. And with the guaranteed income discussion, it's it's only going to uh, cause this to be much more severe of a situation in the future with the, the uh, ripple effect of the pandemic. Yeah, I agree. I think China has a different problem in a sense, though, in that their um, social safety nets are not as established as ours, um, whether you agree with ours or not. Um, what they tend to do is put more burden on the family, and that has actually slowed down their birth rates because uh, children, a married couple, may have four adults they have to take care of in addition to their own kids, which uh, is a tough cost to, to manage. Yeah, I think the estimate that I saw was 600 million uh, Chinese get government assistance, and that's a monthly income of 1,000 yen, which is $154. So. Just interesting how that's going to play out in the future. Mm -hmm. And actually, Zach had an interesting comment, which I think uh, I think there is a uh, definite connection to automation and robotics uh, with um, uh, universal uh, guaranteed income. Uh, that uh, it's going to be one of the ways to deal with the displacement of people, so that. Uh, companies can do the things to stay competitive as a nation, um, there's a balance that you're going to have to have there. And and we saw what happened when we carved out our manufacturing base when we allowed it to move to lower cost areas. So I think that is um, something that's going to be interesting. It is a, going to be a tough PR move um, to get the mindset right on that, but I think it's going to be unavoidable. So I think, Zach, you bring up a great point on that. Any other comments or questions? That was uh, one of the discussion points on the transition from fossil fuel, uh, fuel to uh, the more green energy, too, is is how do you do that transition? And that was one of the topics of discussion is you're going to have to start paying them uh, while they go through training and, and get them into the, uh, the more sustainable type uh, phased out industries. Can I yeah, just call I, on a few people? Like Andrew Randack, I haven't seen you in ages. You're looking. That's because you haven't been looking. <laughs> well, that could be true. Um, that's what my wife says. But uh, tell, just tell, tell me what what what. How do you see the world? Um, you know, uh, I think that right now is not the time. In the middle of August uh, to make 
you know, grand assessments of what's going on with the U.S. Con- economy over the intermediate and long term. Um, there we're, we've got very slow data. Earnings season is basically behind us. Um, I'm not as troubled. Uh, Duncan and Bill and Steve and I have been talking about the repo market. Uh, I'm not as troubled by monetary policy right now. Um, mainly because of the dislocations in the economy. There's, we have the, we have uh, the supply and the demand resources. They're just not matched up properly. Uh, and I think that it's still going to take a while to get that done. Um, I keep hearing more and more stories of office openings going, getting pushed back again and again and again. Uh, a friend at Citibank said that they gave them three dates that they could all go back. It was July 19th, September 19th. And January 19th, uh, and they let everybody vote on that. And I think 80% or more of the employees voted January 19th. Um, and almost nobody voted other than middle management for July 19th. Um, there is a significant management problem in America right now where middle managers all of a sudden ha- are accountable. Uh, because they can't walk the halls and browbeat people and intimidate people anymore. Uh, there was a great article either in Atlantic or Foreign Affairs about that online a few weeks ago, uh, that now not only are frontline workers accountable like we always have been, uh, but middle managers finally just can't use, you know, the threats and et cetera to, to posture and show their value to senior management. Um, so I think all of these dislocations that are going on in the economy right now in real time, uh, are it's a bad time to make long-term decisions based on short-term data. Uh, and so we've been in a holding pattern uh, for a while, allocating capital in places that we know is going to, you know, are going to be uh, around for a long time, you know, like the secular tailwinds that Steve, uh, Stephen uh, frequently talks about. Um, don't invest in short-term uh, trends right now. That's at least my perspective. So thank you. And- the great thing about Andrew Randack, which was it was it you or, or David Hinkle who called the other one the, the the second loudest person in in Chile? I was in fourth place. <laughs> three ahead of me. Thank you. Didn't well, even get a problem. It's too bad. Too bad you won't see David Hinkle in Ohio because you'll be out of town. But um, 